Welcome to Artists of New England with your host, Laura Casanari-King. Today, I am delighted to have Craig Hood from Elliott, Maine, who is the Professor Emeritus of Studio Art at UNH in New Hampshire here. Welcome. Good to see you. Yes, it's you. delightful to have you on. So um, I didn't really know who you were when I interviewed your wife. You're kidding me. Everybody knows who I'm is. telling you. I, I, I'm glad you said that. And then I interviewed Dan Fiella, who made the connection from that. Well, I can see my career has been a great success. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That made, my, that made my day. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know. I guess I didn't realize. That. Actually, I, I should restate that. Yeah, maybe you just moved to the area. I don't know. I mean, maybe <laughs> excuse for it. I heard of you. What? Yeah, I did say that wrong, actually. I didn't realize you were Amy's husband. So that was... That was my. You know, yeah, I'm her husband, all right, that's for sure. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> Berger. Berger, yes, that took me forever to figure that that name out. Wow. But um, yeah, so we've got so much to cover. Where should we start? How about I always like to get a little background information. Um, were you always a New Englander? Uh, well, um, in a way, yes, because um, even though I was born in New York City, and um, grew, my parents moved to Pennsylvania when I was about five and a half, so that's where I grew up. Uh, my parents are both from Laconia, New Hampshire. So, okay. and my father's family goes back in New Hampshire and Vermont to the 17th century, so they've been around for a while. Nice. And um, I, uh, I spent all my summer vacations uh, growing up uh, on Lake Winnipesaukee because my grandparents, um, owned the larger of the two islands on Pogus Bay. So oh, I had a lot of time there. And when I was getting my English degree from Boston University, I actually went up there a lot in the fall and the spring, spent a weekend on the island. And when I got my job at um, UNH in 1981, my grandmother acted like I had finally come to my senses and moved back to New Hampshire, even though it was a complete accident. I, I applied for jobs all the way from New York to Wyoming, and UNH was the place that offered me a job, so I ended up here. And, um, so anyway, I, I, you know, it was nice to come back, I guess, and um, yeah. identify with the area in a lot of respects. My grandmother was actually spent most of her life in New Hampshire, but she was born in Maine. Okay. And um, so I, I still go still go visit the family plots most summers. I didn't do it this year because of the COVID, but I go up to Laconia and um, nice. visit the old family up there who have departed. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. We just, in fact, moved to uh, Northampton from um, Alton Bay. We were up there. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's just a lovely area. Oh, yeah. it's. Uh, I think uh, Lake Wittipasaki had... Uh, Growing up, I think, and when I was in college, it had a real impact on my imagination, actually. Sure. Um, since it's such an impressive uh, geographic um, feature and um, such an enormous uh, place, it has a real poetic um, mm -hmm. aura to it and all kinds of things. So, yeah. So, what about your art? What, what are your earliest uh, recollections as a child? Anything at all? Drawing on the walls and the sand? I wasn't allowed to draw on the walls. And uh, my mother always said I was a very good little boy. Uh, so I didn't do that. And, um, but you know, uh, I actually don't have 
uh, I have hardly any memories uh, of making art when I was a kid. Um, I, I really like sports. So you know, play baseball, basketball, football. Um, I was a very good golfer when I was in high school. I, I almost considered, well, I did consider being a pro golfer. And uh -huh. so I, uh, the little town that I grew up in, in Pennsylvania, um, was remote in some respects. Uh, I, I went to my first art museum when I was 20 years old. Mm -hmm. um, I was visiting in San Francisco, I went to the Museum of Art in San Francisco. And then when I went to, I transferred to Boston University and um, I started going to the MFA almost immediately because my girlfriend, uh, at least for a time, was a, a art history major. So mm -hmm. she took me there and I guess I uh, kind of caught the bug. I went back um, all the way through my undergraduate education. And um, so I started painting myself when I was 21 years old. I just took it up. And wow. So I had um, virtually no art experience until then. Really? That, that's amazing. And your undergrad was English Lit, right? I got a degree in English Literature. Yeah. And I actually um, started graduate school in English Literature at Northeastern University. Oh. And um, I quit after one semester because even though, even though the two classes that I took at Northeastern were wonderful um, literature classes. They really were. Uh, I realized that they were training me to be a scholar. And um, mm -hmm. I finally realized uh, I didn't want to be a scholar, as dependent as I've been on scholars as an artist for what I've learned about art. Uh, I didn't feel like I was one of them. So uh, I dropped out of school and um, was out of school for a while. I moved back to Pennsylvania because my sister was living in a Oh, kind of a hippie house in State College, Pennsylvania. And she said I could live there for a while because everybody else was. And <laughs> I, I got my painting materials and I started painting again. I had painted in my dorm room when I was in Boston University. I was a, literally a Sunday painter. Yeah. And what were you using for me then? I used to oil paint. Oh. I used oil paint and turpentine and medium. I painted right in my dorm room. My, my roommate, um, actually was an art history major and a guitar player. So he would, he was delighted to have me paint. And my dorm mates would come in and criticize my paintings and critique my paintings. It was, it was hilarious. It was considered a kind of a novelty. And um, I just thought I was, uh, I didn't have a really a concrete idea what I was going to do with my life. I figured I'd either be a writer or go to law school or something. I would be an art collector, an amateur artist or something. And uh, I think after I dropped out of graduate school, I didn't have anything to do for a while. I took a painting to, to amuse myself. Mm -hmm. And I realized my life was going nowhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I took a drawing class and I took a second drawing class and then eventually a painting class. So, wow. so I got started. And then that was the bug that bit and took a turn. Yeah, I, um, you know, eventually, uh, I took a painting class at Penn State after I'd taken two drawing classes and I thought, if this goes well, I'll become an art major and I'll study art. And um, I had a wonderful experience doing that. Um, it was one of the uh, most important experiences I, I had as an artist. Um, I've been eternally grateful for it. And that is I, 
I took my introductory painting class with a, uh, a man named Steve Sherman, who was a New York City painter who had come to Penn State for three years to teach. And um, he was a classic New Yorker, um, abrasive, tough guy, you know, very opinionated and critical and very serious. And he, the first day we painted um, at the end of the class, he went around, he was looking at people's painting at the end of the class. He, he looked at my painting, he just said, you know, you're going to do very well with painting. You should go to a really good graduate school like Yale or something like that. And um, so he gave me an endorsement I expected, had expected to spend the whole semester earning. And I flew back to my apartment on little wings, you know, and um, I was really happy, did well in the class and signed up to be an art major. And um, mm -hmm. so I got my undergraduate degree in painting from Penn State and um, then I spent a summer at the New York Studio School, which is also a very important experience, and went to graduate school in painting at Indiana University, which, as you may know, has a very good um, uh, graduate painting program. Yeah, I'm sure you, you were probably quite aware of how that influenced your life as you then began to be a teacher yourself. Yeah, I uh, absolutely. And I felt that before that happened, before I had that experience in, in introductory painting at the university um, with a painter like Steve Sherman, um, nobody had told me that I had talent for art. I mean, maybe I don't, but um, you know, my junior high school art teacher, my high school art teacher, my mm -hmm. parents, nobody had said, wow, you have talent for art, you should study it, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, I was just flying along basically on my own energy and um, conviction so that I, after I got that, I re always realized I never forgot what an enormous boost it was to me. And I do think that's uh, an important aspect of being a teacher, especially at the university. If somebody has talent, you should, you should let them know it and you should mm -hmm. reinforce that. Of course, the frustrating thing is that this is, this is an art teacher's dirty little secret that most people with art talent actually don't become artists. And um, I think when I was at UNH, um, of course I met many talented people who are now artists, but some of the most talented people are now business people or dentists. Mm -hmm. The best figure drawer I ever saw is a dentist now. Wow. And um, <laughs> so that's, I once met a young student um, in my first or second year at UNH. She was a business major. She drew so well that she had um, like uh, a Raphael or Degas level talent, I thought. Yeah. I felt like I was in a room with um, Mozart level talent. And I used to go watch her draw all the time because mm -hmm. I figured maybe I'll learn something. But it, it happened so quickly and so naturally to her, so effortlessly that I didn't learn anything. I would just go home and, and I'd be hacking away as I usually did. But anyway, I, I said to her at one point, I said, you're going to take intermediate drawing, I assume, next time. She said, oh, I don't think so. I can't fit it in my schedule. That's what they will say. I can't fit it in my schedule because I'm a business major. And I said, well, maybe you can take it later on. You know? And she said, oh, I don't think so. And I said, you're, and I said you've got to be kidding. Why not? And she said, well, it just doesn't excite me that much. You know? And, um, wow. wow. Uh, in business, in business. I've been like, what does excite you? You know, I mean, so anyway, she just drifted, got her business degree, um, 
and maybe she's a very successful business person. I don't know. But you see that a lot, I think, in yeah. TV. And, um, well, you see it, too. I'm a music teacher, and you do see, in fact, it, it can be really sad that the kids that have the most natural ability tend yeah. to kind of sit back and not not exert themselves. And yeah. I, I, I've seen over and over kids that just don't have half the ability apply themselves yeah. and really go somewhere. So... Yeah, it's just a strange thing. But. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, um, that's for sure. The other thing I was going to say is that uh, one of the most inspiring and amazing things you see when you teach art at university is how common it is for people to have talent. You know, there is this mystique about artistic talent, like it's something incredibly rare. Um, actually, it's not. Um, <laughs> And I remember the first drawing class I taught when I was a graduate student at Indiana University. I figured this class would be full of farm kids. They won't know anything. And oh my God, they could draw like you couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And I had to get really serious about teaching. And because um, these guys were good. And I found the same thing when I came to UNH. Yeah. Um, every class I had, it, I found that it's one of the first things I learned about teaching. The town is like a weed, you know, it just grows everywhere. Yeah. And, um, uh, It'd probably be a very funny world if everybody that had talent for art actually became artists. I think it'd be right, right. Very, very crowded very fast, but yeah. actually, and that's, you know, again, I think that it's, it's kind of a self-serving myth among artists and connoisseurs, you know, that the artist is a master and um, I'm, I, I don't think too many people have the talent of Leonardo or Rubens or Monet or whatever, but as I say, purely on the level of talent, physical skill and talent, um, awful lot of people have it, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I do see it for sure. And I, you know, I kind of grew up um, with a sister who um, just could draw anything out of her head, you know, and she was six years older. So I grew up thinking that's, that's an artist, you know, and my, out of my head was, you know, <laughs> little stick figure and so I wasn't an artist and that's what I believed for all those years and then um, was totally blown away when I took a class called drawing on the right side of the brain for fun and it's a long story but you know when I turned that first drawing upside down I cried I could not believe I did it yeah. um, and, and that, that, that that was a potential probably that everybody's got right <laughs> yeah yeah I uh of course, I threatened for many years to write a book called Drawing Without Your Brain. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think that's even better, but uh, in some respects. Um, yeah. um, it's it, Because it's a weird thing. You, uh, It's one of those things, uh, there's a great Charlie Chaplin movie called The Magician, um, that, or The Circus, excuse me. And it's, it's about a, a uh, circus clown that's only funny when he's not trying to be. Uh, and um, that uh, with drawing and painting, it's it's not so good if you don't try at all. But if you try too hard, it's even worse. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that might be why some incredibly undisciplined, uncouth, uh, uh, antisocial characters are sometimes very good artists. You know, because they they don't have the those inhibitions. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But everybody, I, I always told my art students that. I'm going to treat you um, all the same and different, you know, because yeah. um, some of them 
some of them, uh, some people need to be critiqued, some people need to be um, pampered, some people need to be humored, you know? Um, yeah. You find yourself in a position of trying to figure out what this person needs. Right. So. Yeah. So as far as your own art, art uh, goes, how did you maintain, because I see that you have done an extensive um, national and, and even world, you know, some great shows. Yeah, it's amazing. You never heard of me. I, it is. I, I feel terrible. I'll come back to that again, but <laughs> that's okay. I'm really, I'm just kidding. And, and I just, you know, how did you do all that and maintain, you know, your teaching? Because teaching, oh, I know, is... I, I worked good. really hard. <laughs> I worked really hard. Yeah. And a lot of them who teach do that, you know. Yeah. Uh, my, um, I don't work hard anymore because I'm an old person. And I finally, at a certain point, I realized um, there's more to life than working hard. And uh, I also think that, uh, or it, with the experience, I realized that you need to make a great painting with your mind, that your talent, your brain, and your soul. You know, not by just putting in ten hours a day or something like that. But when I started, uh, the first five or ten years to get some traction, um, you know, I I wasn't married. I was living by myself. I would work ridiculous hours to to produce enough work to be. Uh, viable commercially or whatever and um, so I, I'm not sure I could do it again if I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was was the drive um, you know to to support yourself in any way or to you know what was the drive at that time? Well I don't know it could be a lot of things yeah to, to support yourself from one year to the next so you could keep painting um also um just a desire to be as good as you can be um and i think some of it's just obsessive behavior right um, that uh and i think a lot of artists are um have that kind of temperament i used to joke with my about my family that i got my talent from my mother and my obsessive behavior from my father and um I say that to embarrass my dad, but I, then I would always say, um, don't underestimate the significance of obsessive behavior. He, he was a neurosurgeon and he was famous for working really, really long. He was one of these people who could operate on people's brains for two days at a time. And I don't know how those folks turned out, but anyway, he, he was very successful doing it. But, um, uh, I think part of it is is that not being able to let go. I still have I still have that part of it. Like uh, I'll sit down to draw for a few few minutes or something like that, and an hour or two or three will go by, and I'll just like I can't let go of this thing until I make it. I was very influenced years ago. I read uh, an interview with Ernest Hemingway that had a lot of influence on me, and he said some things about working as an artist that were were actually more interesting than what I've heard from a lot of visual artists. And one thing he said was that um, he said he were he claimed that he worked every day until he felt that he had accomplished something. So that meant he wasn't telling all his friends, oh, I'm going to paint, I'm going to write six hours a day or 10 hours a day until I finish the next great novel or something like that, that he would, he would work a half an hour, an hour or so if he felt like he 
he'd push the ball up the court at all. He'd go to the museum or go to Gertrude Stein's um, uh, apartment or go to a bullfight or whatever, go live his life and have more experiences to, to write about. Mm -hmm. And if he felt he took him all day to uh, make any progress with his work, he'd do that. And um, when I was younger, I wasn't in a position to employ that kind of standard because I didn't I spent so much time at my day job teaching. So I had to use work long hours in the days I have. But as I've gotten older, gradually, I started to use that kind of standard. You know, I go to my studio. If I really do make some progress with my work that's gratifying on some level, yeah, I'll go do something else, you know, for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's not the same every day. Right. And um, which I also think is another thing that's important. Uh, I think when you're a young artist, doesn't hurt if you can put in a lot of um, hours. But as you get older, um, I think it doesn't prove anything and it doesn't result. I don't think you have to work as long. I mean, I feel like I'm a little smarter as an older artist. Mm -hmm. Maybe not, I don't know, but, or I'm more in touch with who I am and what I can do. And I, I don't try to do things I can't do either. Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't think I have to work as long, but Right about now, I've forgotten what the question was. So <laughs> I'm just talking about myself. No, that was, that was great. This is all great. But I, I did want to ask you, because Hemingway, in looking at your work, for some reason, I just like, that's, I think, Hemingway, when, when um, I view a lot of your subject matter. So how, tell us how, you know, what did you use to paint? Did you start off painting? And how did you come to what you're doing now? And then um, we'll start with that. <laughs> I could probably talk about that for two or three hours. So, uh, I, uh, well, you know, when I was, um, when I was in graduate school, I worked the, with a figure. I really wanted to work with a human figure. And I took Bonnie Skolarski's anatomy course for artists twice, which was world-class uh, artist anatomy course. And I worked all, always with a figure. Um, and, um, about the time I felt I learned how to draw the figure, I realized I didn't really know what to do with it. I didn't really have anything to say. And um, that's a real problem if you're an artist. And uh, so I thought I really want to develop as a painter. So I quit doing that. I was a still life painter for about 10 years. And so I painted all the time because I could always make a setup, I could whatever. And, and I would just paint my brains out. And, um, and uh, then at a certain point, I think Amy and I, we made our first trip to Rome. Um, we went to Rome for a couple of weeks, one year. And a, and a year or two after that, we went to Florence. About that time, I realized it's time to get serious with life. And um, so about almost, almost exactly the time I turned 40, I decided to work with the figure. I decided to put the figure in a landscape instead of, you know, I've never been that crazy about the, a nude figure lying around on a couch, you know, as great a painter as Lucian Floyd is, mm -hmm. um, I can take it or leave it. And um, so I figured the human figure should be out in the world, walking around or doing whatever where people exist. And um, so I started to work with the figure and landscape and that's what I'm still doing. And so from that point on, there was really a lot of continuity in my work. So in a sense, I've been working on an open-ended series for almost 29 years, 28 years. And um, 
along the way, I started plein air painting, which I actually, I hadn't painted from life. I make all my figure works from my imagination. Um, I hadn't painted from life in 25 years, I don't think. And a few years ago, I started doing that. Now I do that with a great deal of enthusiasm, mostly because it's fun. Um, mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I, I make figure and landscape paintings. I make figure and landscape drawings. Last year, I made figure drawings. I make the plein air paintings as a, partially as a way of rejuvenating my understanding of the landscape, since that's going to be the repository for my figures. Mm -hmm. And um, to, um, to push my experiences with color, you know, um, which I think have been a little narrow. I haven't always needed a lot of color for, for my figure paintings. Um, but it allows me to do things with my, with color, think about color um, outside the realm of my normal activities in a sense. And um, I think gradually from time to time, I bring some of that back into my studio painting. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's mostly um, what I've uh, been devoted to over the years. I, my figure and landscape paintings are, I consider narrative paintings. They're not the kind of overtly narrative paintings. And sometimes I avoid the term because I just don't want to argue about whether they actually are narrative paintings. Um, to me, to me, if you put the figure out and have them walking around in the world, that's a narrative painting because it's a kind of story, a vision of the, the character of human life. And that's, that's mostly what I'm trying to show in my work is what life is like, mm -hmm. you know, what I, what I think life is like. That's what my paintings are like, believe it or not. I think some people look at the paintings and they go, oh my God, I can't, you know, no way. But, um, uh, but to me, that's what it looks like. You know, and how would you describe your work? Because it's it's just so unique, and there's so many words. It's very ethereal and tonalistic. But what would you, how would you describe it to someone who's who doesn't know it? Well, I'm not sure. I I try. I mean, I'll describe it as narrative art, narrative figure and landscape painting, as plein air painting. Um, there are certain uh, characteristics that my art has for sure. Um, like uh, it is, particularly my drawing is uh, explicitly tonal. Uh, I mean, one of the turning points in my drawing career was, um, this is many years ago now. Uh, it's about the, just before I started working with the figure again. So it's before I was, it's over, it's almost 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. That um, conventionally, most artists I think will draw with line um, if they make a tonal drawing, then they'll, they'll add the tone to line with some exception. And um, a, one uh, prominent exception to that is the American painter Edwin Dickinson, who seems to rely very um, independently on line at one moment, on tone the next. He'll mm -hmm. sometimes start drawings with tone and reinforce them with line, sometimes with line and reinforce them with tone. Very idiosyncratic very unpredictable, very interesting behavior. Um, it's, no, it's no drill and fill, you know, I mean, it's not just a line drawing and then you, then you color it. And I noticed that uh, at a certain point in my work that um, 
I was, I got bored with the linear stage of my drawing. Like I was like, I couldn't wait for that part to be over, you know? And so then I thought, well, why don't I just start, why don't I just make the drawing out tones, you know, uh, without any lines, which felt a little bit awkward at first, especially since I wanted the drawings to be rather full pictures, I guess, whatever that means. Um, and, um, but I started doing that. Uh, I used my students as guinea pigs at times for that because I would have them draw that way. And I could see that sometimes they made very good drawings like that. So I thought, yeah, if it works for them, it's gonna work for me. You know, it's a valid idea for it not only works for me, it works for other people. Yeah. And um, this happens when you teach, when you're really teaching a lot and you have time, you don't have the time to do all it. You you're, you're bursting with ideas. You don't have time to execute all of them, you know? So you, you have your students do it to see how it works, you know, and that can be extremely um, illuminating, can be really helpful. Once you have time to work again, you've, you've done a lot of thinking about it. Your students have um, helped show the way. In essence, they've done what you didn't have the time to do. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, um, that was um, that uh, switch in my work to, and then this happened in my painting where I went, it's very unusual for me to use a line in a painting. If I'm describing a telephone wire or something like that, I'll paint a line, a form that's like a line. And, um, but otherwise, I just don't use any, any lines. And um, so I, uh, it's a kind of uh, very uh, pure way of thinking, I think, for me. And um, makes sense. I think uh, I enjoy color and light and tone um, as much as anything in the visual um, world. And my, my drawings um, and my paintings in sort of a cyclical fashion, I think there've been three or four or five cycles in which the forms in my paintings and drawings become more and more concrete and then they, then they become less concrete yeah. where they, they almost disappear. And right, right. It's, it's captivating to see, you know, them kind of emerge out of this fog or something. You know? I actually have made some paintings that have landscape paintings that have figures in them, but I think nobody knows it. Wow. Um, they're so, and um, I, I remember uh, actually standing in front of one of, my, one of my paintings at the George Marshall Store Gallery with a painter in the region that's fairly prominent. I won't mention his name, but he said something to me like we were, I was standing in front of a, a painting that was called Copper Moon. It has a man bending over in the middle of a field. He's, he's, the subtitle is planting a seed. He's just bending over, planting a seed or doing something. And so this, this guy says to me, oh, you know, I, I, you should go back to doing those paintings with the figures. I, I really like those paintings you do with the figures. We were standing right beside one, you know, but I don't know, like for some reason he couldn't see it, you know, and that was one of the, I did some figures that were even more ethereal or hard to decipher. And, you know, at a certain point, like last year, it was interesting and I think maybe good for me in a way because I took the year off from painting because we sold our house, bought a house, moved to Elliott. Um, until this summer when we renovated the barn into a studio, I, uh, I had a kind of temporary studio in the same room I'm sitting now in the old living room in our house. It is a very nice room. But I felt it would make a good drawing studio, not a good painting studio. So I spent a year, the whole winter making drawings. I made 
30 figure landscape drawings of a variety of sizes. And that was good because I, I brought a lot more architecture. I think moving to the country and being around, having a house that has a barn and being around farms and so forth, mm -hmm. I started using a lot more of that imagery. And having recently gone back to my paintings, yeah, there's more architecture in the paintings. And um, uh, because there was more architecture, I think possibly I'd done more rendering in the drawings last year. So the, I, the paintings have come a little bit back out of the fog, you know, for the time being, which I think is probably healthy for everybody. But yeah, yeah right. Uh, so I have a few questions, though, about your drawings. You get these effects of these little spots on your yeah. graphite drawings. What is that? Isn't it like a? It's actually it's spit. <laughs> it is, um, and um, it uh, I that's an affectation, I'm sure, but. Uh, I've been making graphite drawings with pencil for, in that manner, for almost almost 30 years. And um, so for many years, I had a very tense, like, attitude towards every drawing I was making. It was graphite and it was precious. I didn't want to get the paper dirty and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and I was making, I made this series of portrait heads 20 years ago. And um, one, one time I was spraying, putting spray fix on one of these drawings after I did it, and the, the can of fixative spread out, spit out this stuff that looked like tar. And it went right across the front of this figure. And I thought, oh, geez, that's terrible, you know? And then I looked at it and I thought, wow, that looks, that doesn't look so bad in a way, you know? Um, and um, it, it sort of, uh, it sort of coincided with my interest in black and white photography, which so people that make tonal drawings like I do invariably end up studying black and white photography quite a bit because it's an endless, endless, um, uh, uh, it's like an encyclopedia of light, you know, because there's no color in it at all. It's just all tonal and it's a great fiction of the world. They, people act like, uh, Black and white photography is realist photography, but it's not because it's a kind of theater. The world isn't black and white, you know, so it, it's, it's kind of like looking at going to the opera or something. But uh, anyway, um, a lot of old photography, especially 19th century Civil War era photography and so forth, <clears throat> uh, the photographs are distressed, you know, the, either the plates were damaged or broken or the photographs themselves have been. So it's like you look at the image through all this hissing noise and everything. And there's a lot about life is like that. And my graphite drawings, I, I had a kind of interest in a little bit in a way of trying to make them look like a kind of document, not like a photograph exactly, but like not something that was made that was self-consciously artistic with my own hand or something. And I don't really show my hand in my drawings anyway, because I'm just building up tones. And um, so I started, I started experimenting with distressing the drawings. At first I did that just to relax myself. I would ruin the paper. If I was working on a big piece of paper, I'd ruin it. So I wouldn't have to worry about getting it dirty or anything like that. It would already be ruined. And then I also, when I switched to using Bristol board, uh, Bristol board is a funny paper because when you get it, doesn't matter if you get it in the store, you order it through the mail, whatever you get it, you get it. It looks absolutely pristine and clean. You, you pull it out. If you put a toned ground on it, which I put a toned ground of powder graphite on everything I do, uh, all these imperfections will show up. 
So it's almost impossible to, um, this won't happen on a lot of good watercolor drawing paper, very unusual, but on Bristol board it happens all the time. So you'll get like surprise, surprise. There's a big line across one part of the drawing or a circle over here or one thing or another. So I just decided to roll with the punches with all that. And so I still get that kind of thing. Like I, uh, I've been gluing paper to board because last year I made all my drawings on panel, which was okay, but the surface was a little too slippery and everything. So I like the best service I like is actually paper applied to the panel because then it's hard and soft at the same time. <laughs> and um, the funny thing is I haven't, this is almost embarrassing because I should know how to do this, but I haven't really found out a perfect effective way to um, glue the paper to the board, to the panel without getting glue all over the place. Okay, mm -hmm. and some of it ends up getting on the front of the paper. I found that that just amounts to more distressing. So when I put the tone ground on, I'll get a, a piece of dark that's on where the glue spot came. And I, uh, I, you know, I figured out like everybody has that you can learn anything um, from YouTube. So I figured this is a little embarrassing for some of you who taught art for 37 years. I shouldn't admit this, but I, I went on YouTube to find out how to glue paper on a board. Um, uh, so I, I encountered this woman who was really kind of an artsy craftsy person. She wasn't really a painter or anything like that. Yeah. And she had a very effective way of doing it that I'd actually thought about in a way, which is that you just have a bigger piece of paper, you glue, I think, the panel, you set it down on the paper, then you cut it with a razor or something like that. But I didn't like that because I like the beveled edge from a, a, ra a ruler cut piece of paper. I like the paper to be just a little smaller than the board. I don't like it to be look clean. I like it to look like paper, you know? Mm -hmm. So I realized she's got a great way of doing it, but it just doesn't look good, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway. But, but if you if you open up the issue of tonal drawing and everything, you know, the dam breaks for me because that is a topic that I've worked a lot with. It's something I really do love, you know. Yeah. I want to explore that some more, but I have to know how you glue your paper. What are you using and putting on there? Um, I use a, a acrylic medium. Oh, okay. And um, because... Uh, I uh, I used to have my students mix acrylic medium with water and then thin down their acrylic gesso to prime their canvases, although it's, thought, it's not thought that that's necessary anymore. I think the acrylic gesso has been improved, so it's not necessary to do that. But along the way, um, I found out that acrylic medium is a very powerful glue. Um, and... Uh, I don't know if these drawings are going to peel off the panel and when I'm gone or what, but. And this is the Bristol board you, you put on. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I do the same, I did a YouTube as well very recently. It was canvas paper I was trying to figure out how to glue and I could only find these arts and crafts people. Yeah. Which was interesting, but. Well, it's funny. I. I, I'd make a YouTube film, but I don't think people would be interested in doing it the way I'm doing it. <laughs> I'll just see it, because now you have an intrigued. How do you get the cut that you want on the edge? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that uh, sounds to be a little tricky. Yeah, it is. But, um, and I, I now I'm working on such small pictures mm -hmm. right now that 
it's not that difficult. The real issue will become, and as long as I'm painting again in my studio, I don't think I'm going to make too many larger drawings. Um, but I think when you really have to get serious uh, about putting paper on panel is when you work fairly large. And um, mm. and I think that's a different, that's harder to do. And the potential for the sloppiness to get way out of hand, I think is, is a lot greater. Um, but I'll probably bump into somebody that'll tell me how to really do it eventually. Um, yeah. I did know some people like the printmaker, Scott Schnepp, made some beautiful drawings on paper glued to a board. But, and when Scott, last time Scott was over here, I meant to ask him about this and I forgot, of course, you know, you get drinking wine and whatever. <laughs> and it's not the first thing he jumps into your head. Um, but I think with Scott, Scott used rabbit skin glue, which is, you know, the old fashioned way. And I'm sure rabbit skin glue is a pretty powerful glue, yeah. although the acrylic glue might be more permanent. I'm, I'm not sure. But in Scott's case, it didn't matter if he slobbered it because he actually, I, if I remember correctly, he glued the paper to the board and he also put the glue on top of the paper, which you can do. Yeah. And um, then drew on top of the glued paper. And um, I had I had drawn on top of uh, glue before many years ago. I already figured out that I didn't I didn't like that. I thought it made produce the surface that I didn't like. So um, in a way, I thought that would make it easier. That would make it easy if you could just slobber it all over the glue it down, slobber it around the front, and walk away and let it dry. You know, mm -hmm. um, at least that's that's how I uh, thought he did it. Next time I see Scott, if I remember to ask him. I'll, See if he can clarify that for me. <laughs> All right. Um, so a couple things. You your subject matter. Where do you get? I mean, you say you, that you're pulling these figures out of your head and then uh, out of the mist, which is very cool. And you also said that your hand is not showing in your tonal drawings. Yeah. I that confuses me. Well, I mean, I'd, I've never been, um, like my, my former teacher, teaching colleague, Melvin Zabarski, the painter, um, my early still life paintings, um, I used to use these very fine sable brushes, I'd use a stand oil, and I'd stand at these, and I'd blend these things all day, there wouldn't be a single brush mark on them, and he used to, uh, partly as a joke and to tease me, he would, he called them my hand of God paintings, you know, because there was no flopping around. Like you look at a Van Gogh or a Monet, yeah. you can see their brush marks all over the place. And that's, that's all I mean that okay. I don't make a, when you, I take a pencil right now in my drawings, almost 90% of the drawing is just a toned ground. And some places it's erased with a little, um, graphic designers, uh, what do they call these things? Dry erase, dry cleaning pad. It's like mm -hmm. a little pillow. And um, they're not technically erasers. Uh, I think it's used by dra in drafting to clean a drawing mm -hmm. um, if it's smudged or something. Um, that uh, it has a kind of material that's like broken up erasers on the inside of the pillow. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's used to clean drawings usually, but one day I was in the art store, this is almost 20 years ago, one day I was in the art store and I was looking at one of these things because I'm always 
I'm always looking for an edge, you know, or something will help me draw better. So I was looking at these things and I thought, you know, one thing that bothered me with my erasing was that my drawings were really soft. If I ever erased, then I had to, I'd have to spend an hour or two just softening them again. Mm. And um, it's hard to erase softly without making a mark. And so I thought, I wonder if these things will erase. So I tried them out on my graphite drawings. It turns out, yeah, they erase. Mm -hmm. And they um, erase clouds of light um, with very soft edges. So you don't have to, um, it saved me on the average. Um, I make it probably, I make almost all of my drawings in about 25% of the time that I used to. Mm -hmm. It saved me so much time. All of a sudden, I was spitting out these drawings, you know, because I wasn't having to go back with the pencil and reestablish the gradations. Um, the pillow would do it for me. And uh, so that was about once every 10 years, maybe once every 10 or 15 years, I discover something technical that's a real boost. Yeah, yeah. And that was something that was extremely helpful. So how do you, how do you uh, find your subject matter? Where does it come from in your head? Is it coming Well, from? let me think about that for a minute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the period, um, you know, the figures are uh, primarily, I'm seeing men. Yeah. They're maybe their 1920s outfit or yeah. you know, some women and children as well. Um, is what what influences that well um when in doubt i'll paint somebody that looks like every man mm -hmm. or draw somebody that looks like every man i'll just put them in there and um try to give them some life and somebody every once in a while i put in every woman you know i'll put her in there too i think the last literally the last drawing i did a, few, a couple of days ago has a male well actually the last two drawings have a male male female couple you know i have drawn more men than women because i think i'll always default to that because i am a man i guess it's easier for me to draw and know what one looks like a little bit more or something and i've learned a certain shorthand it it probably doesn't work but for me that i i will in a hazy environment i'll draw the like the v shape of of a man's uh shirt under his uh, suit coat to me that stands for a man and uh, like I can, by the, where I put the V, I can tell how big the man's going to be. Occasionally, mm -hmm. I made a drawing last year called Little Red Rooster. It's a picture of a guy standing inside a barn door. I didn't draw him at all. I just drew the V. But I think mm -hmm. you can tell it's a man standing there. And, um, mm -hmm. but originally, um, you know, I painted, I always painted some, uh, I was influenced a little bit by Van Gogh. Like my first figure painting I made was a guy in, in dungarees in blue jeans and um, t-shirt and a baseball hat with a lunch bucket walking home from work. Mm -hmm. I thought, I'll just choose a working stiff, you know? So I painted people like that. And um, then for a number of years, I painted neighborhood scenes. So I went to this period where I used the Harlequin figure and his consort or girlfriend or wife, sometimes with one or two kids. I, I painted those guys for a couple of years. And then I think a few other different types of figures. And, um, and then, oh, then, then there were, uh, I did a series of paintings called the Blue River 
paintings um, that uh, I think the figures in those paintings were mostly homeless people, mostly men, okay. with, with some exception. And they were just, they were kind of wandered off people. They were just people who wandered off and they were living, all the paintings were located along the river. Uh, there was some hovels in them. The, the architecture had been reduced to these little shacks that they built for themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, then, uh, then I think it's back to the every man or the male and female couple. And, you know, you won't believe this can happen, but sometimes I blank on my own work. <laughs> like like I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to think if there's other types that I, uh, I'm neglecting to remember. But some of them are just human beings. Yeah. They're just human beings. And um, maybe I should have something more to say than that. But getting back to one of the other uh, questions, I think that you had suggested you might talk about um it's i've always been very aware that i don't have i don't have any kind of social or political agenda at all that i'm aware of mm -hmm. and that makes me different than a lot of narrative figure painters in the contemporary art world and i think that kind of art is great by the way mm -hmm. i don't have a, a problem with that at all i think if i and i think some of this has to do with who i am i am an older anglo-saxon white male and um by definition, I've never been disenfranchised. Uh, I don't need to be leveraged in society. Um, you know, if I were an African-American or I were a woman, I think I would be much more inclined to be making art about that and to, to be dealing with the subject matter um, that uh, would be relevant um, to, to stressing, stressing those agendas, as it were, uh, which I support, support um, uh, enthusiastically. Um, I am interested in that art. Uh, I would say that, that, you know, but, but again, I think I'm a poetic creature, you know. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of political opinions, which I'm not going to share with you right now. That's a, that's a whole different uh, interview. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't, with some exception, with some exception, I don't, I don't know. To me, to me, uh, I guess art is, um, as I say, I think I'm a poetic character. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always been uh, a little out there that way. And I, um, I think what I want to convey is just an, an idea, state, mental, emotional, metaphysical state of living mm -hmm. in the world. And I think it's something I know about. You know, I've often, my Blue River paintings were, were very solitary figures and very solitary uh, environments. And I'm a fairly solitary character myself. I think people might be surprised how little I do from day to day with, in, with other people and so forth, especially since I stopped teaching. Right. Um, uh, and so- The fresh air after a while. <laughs> what's that? Probably a breath of fresh air after many years in the- yeah, well, it's really nice yeah. not having to be so disciplined as you have to be while you're teaching. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone slack, <laughs> gone slack quite a bit. I love it. So um, you do a lot more, you said, a lot more plein air. Um, 
Did, did you say you ever did that years ago or was the, is that all relevant? Well, I, um, when I was an art student, um, particularly, I'd say the first, the five years I was an art student and the first five years I was out of school teaching, um, I was a, um, a enthusiastic drawing in the drawing in the street artist wherever I went. Uh, if I had nervous um, energy, if I wanted to get away from my studio painting, I was out on the street okay. uh, everywhere. I would draw, and I usually didn't paint when I did that, with, with very few exceptions. I usually made pencil, charcoal, or quite often ink drawings. A lot of times I like to work with a medium that was as close to painting as possible. Okay. And um, so I, at one point I had um, a great deal of experience uh, wandering, I loved wandering around, loved being outside, um, drawing new things and sometimes painting them. And then at a certain point um, after, I, after I stopped still life painting, um, during the time I was still life painting and I gave some thought about how I was gonna proceed as a figure painter, um, I had certain options, you know, I could hire a model and have them come in and lie on the couch and I could paint them, which like I say, I did when I was in graduate school, but it wasn't interesting to me anymore. Um, and um, uh, I suppose uh, I could do all <clears throat> sorts. Of, well, another thing was I got tired of working with models. That was another thing. <laughs> and I didn't want to hire them all. I didn't want to pay them all. I didn't want to be stood up by them all. I didn't want them all coming late. <clears throat> I didn't want them all coming in drunk. I didn't want it, you know, one thing after another. Yeah. And I also, when I st took stock of things, I realized that um, a lot of the painters that I admired and a couple of my teachers painted almost exclusively from imagination or memory. Mm. My painting teacher at Indiana, uh, Jim McGarrell, uh, painted mostly from his imagination, if not almost exclusively. Um, Richard Ryan, who's an um, amazing painter, uh, was just starting his teaching career at IU when I was there. Um, he made some of the most beautiful paintings I've ever seen, and they're very naturalistic. You could paint still life or something like that from his imagination mm -hmm. um, and figures, no problem. And um, the great uh, still life painter, uh, William Bailey, uh, whose paintings are uh, kind of indirectly from life. I think he kept his, he had, he, he owned the still life objects he painted, but he didn't set them up and paint them. He kept them around and he arranged them abstractly on his canvas. So I decided that even if it resulted in a more primitive type of painting, um, in a way, a cruder, more awkward, primitive type of painting that I wanted to make something that I thought was exclusively an intellectual and artistic construct. Mm -hmm. It was just purely, absolutely purely a vision of mine. And occasionally I get in over my head. Like I, I used a, I painted a baby elephant one time and I needed to use a source, a pattern book for that, for the elephant. And I don't know, maybe, but my, my figures, my buildings and trees and all, everything I made from my imagination. And it did, I, I think I always could have made a more facile painting. Um, yeah. Certainly if I've been painting from photographs 
and I've been trying to replicate some of the effects I saw in the photographs. I'm sure I could have made a more facile painting, but but no, I wanted to be pure. And um, well, so, did you sketching your outdoor sketching, did you ever use those to, to um, as reference? You know, uh, yeah, I did in a way. I mean, I think that experience was, I don't think I could have painted from my imagination no. if I hadn't had all that experience drawing from life. Right. Yeah, I had a lot of experience at drawing city streets and buildings and people okay. and all kinds of stuff. And um, now, um, I mean, I, I made about 45 plein air paintings this past summer. And most of them, except for the <clears throat> one or two that I've stole, um, are hanging in my studio right now. So they're there to taunt me, as it were, you know, if I, they'll, it's kind of like uh, every once in a while, I'll look at the painting, I'll think, well, maybe I should be doing some of that in this painting. Because um, this plein air paintings, I think for me, it's just new life mm -hmm. all the time. It's new experiences, new investigations, you know, constantly reinforcing, reinvigorating your idea of what you're, your work is, your experience. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think it did. I think it did, um, was uh, important. And um, very seldom, I went, uh, I think <clears throat> 10 or 15 years ago, I went out in the landscape with my sketchbook one time to do some drawing. And I was drawing a city street, I just got really annoyed because <clears throat> the the telephone pole was a certain place and I thought that's not the right place for a telephone pole and like when you make up images yourself yeah. you put everything in a place that you think has some kind of rhythmic meaning sure. um, to the painting you just don't take it as it comes and um, so I had problems there and actually this year just a few weeks ago I thought well I'm making figure paintings again in my new studio so I'm not going to be making the figure drawings at in, in at night like I usually I did last year because if I do that they'll end up being drawings instead of paintings I want to put them all in my paintings but so I thought I'd make some small still life drawings because actually come to think of it I made a series of still life drawings about five years ago and I did have a show at my gallery in Montreal mm. of the of the still life drawings um that were done from life it's like I forgot about that um and um so I thought maybe I'll do some small uh, still lives and I I set up um, a still life one night and I, I drew for about 15 minutes. I got bored, but I couldn't. And I was just like, oh my God, I, I, I have to copy these things. <laughs> um, so I just, I, I took, put the objects away. I, I have this box of small still life objects in, yeah. in case I need them. Yeah. I just put them away again. I started working with the figure again and I, yeah. I've made a half a dozen drawings. I didn't think I was going to make any figure drawings. And of course, these drawings are really small. They're eight by 10 inches. And mm -hmm. that in itself is kind of a, of a problem. You know, uh, how to make a landscape that's only <clears throat> eight by 10 inches with one or two or more figures. Mm -hmm. um, turns out it's not as hard as I thought it was in a way. And um, I haven't, it's too early to be able to assess whether I'm really make, just making a smaller version of the other drawings or whether I'm doing something. Mm. Yeah, when you, I was gonna ask when you were out uh, plein air painting, are you taking at face value what's in front of you or are you doing a bit of- No, I, I joke about it that 
I joke about it with a couple of my friends that I know that also paint outside that actually I'm hardly paying attention to what I'm looking at at all. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a joke, but uh, it is true. Like I, for me, the plein air painting is, um, uh, the painting comes out of the interaction between nature or the place where I am and my idea of what a good painting looks like, which is something completely different. Okay. So there's an enormous tension there. And um, so I can, be, I can be looking at the subject and with great enthusiasm one moment and completely ignoring it the next. Okay. And um, landscape painting is such a thing that even if you're paying explicit close attention to what you're painting, uh, the weather changes and the light changes so much um, that it's almost impossible to paint it that quite often I've painted these sunrises. Now I went out on a couple of days to a place while it was still dark and it's actually a little creepy to do that, um, to be down a dirt road, you know, when it's still dark and then wait for the sun to come up. Um, but what I, what I do more often is while I'm driving to where I'm setting up and while I'm setting up, the sun is finishing going up and so then I'll paint the sunrise. It's not, it's not rising anymore. It happened half an hour ago, but I'm painting it. Mm -hmm. And all of landscape painting is like that in a way. I mean, I, I think Monet, um, Chris Monet went out into the landscape <clears throat> with four or five or six canvases and he would switch them off at intervals as the light changed. Um, and I, I think that seems to me that I've read about Monet that he figured out that the light changed significantly every 12 minutes. Wow. In essence, in 12, <clears throat> it only took 12 minutes for what you're looking at to be become obsolete. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if it, uh, I don't think he changed his canvas every 12 minutes because I, I think it might be physically impossible. Mm -hmm. But that kind of thinking really influenced his work. And when I paint, I paint uh, like, uh, I only informally set up to look in one direction but I don't freeze a frame around what I'm painting. To me, that's, I could never do that. You yeah. know, that, to me, that painting is not like that. And so I'm painting sort of 360 degrees okay. that, you know, uh, if the cloud, if I'm painting pointed in one direction, but there's a beautiful cloud over here, I'm not going to exclude that because it's not in my sun, it's not in my frame, you know, or if there's a color on a tree over here, it's, I'll take that, you know, so I'm, it's kind of like, yeah. you know, I, I see, I see the place that I go to as being, it's kind of like reading the dictionary mm -hmm. or something or a thesaurus of color and shape mm -hmm. that uh, I just see that, that the world is kind of exploding around me in mm -hmm. this theater of shape and color and changing the clouds, for example. Oh my God, you know, uh, they're, do you ever try to paint a cloud? I mean, <laughs> it's like, you know, they're moving around and there's, they're, they're actually, a lot of times I prefer if the sky is utterly blank, which doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I like that because I just get the color and the light in the sky. And I'll paint, I'll paint all these clouds that I've been seeing when I was driving to the supermarket or out for a walk the day before, or you accumulate all these observations. Uh, clouds are light, clouds are dark, they're big or small. They're, uh, I like very animated looking clouds. Yeah. Um, I don't like clouds that are parallel to the earth. I, that's one thing that 
uh, actually it, it annoys and disturbs me. I just can't, ugh. you know, to me, the cloud, when the cloud is tilted, you know, it seems more animated and the most beautiful clouds I think are the tilted ones. Okay. You know, they have a kind of energy and life and weightlessness that a horizontal cloud doesn't have. The only exception I'll make for that uh, is uh, Titian, who painted very beautiful horizontal clouds. <laughs> He's the only one I can get away with. Uh, making I won't let you see any of my work. Okay, so you must have people come up and say things. Do they ever say, so what are you painting? Do they ever ask, like, you know, what's... Well, you know, it's very funny. If you saw... <laughs> I painted this place. My favorite place to paint the last few years is a place I call the lonely place. Okay. And the reason I call it that is that hardly anybody goes there. <laughs> and um, last summer, um, there was a guy named John who was walking his dog. And he's the only guy I knew by name. He would come around. He was very nice because he'd stop and talk to me for five or 10 minutes, but he wouldn't buy you. Then he'd move on. Okay. And um, I can't, I paint at the Lonely Place, it's down a dirt road at the trade port um, in Portsmouth. Uh, nobody else would ever paint there, I don't think. It's not very scenic. Um, in some respects, a lot of it is incredibly uneventful landscape, um, depending on the conditions. Um, and there are a couple other places at the trade port that I paint, but I, <laughs> I can't paint um, in Prescott Park or, uh, in a place where people, because I'm just, I don't have that kind of temperament. I'm, I have a, I think my personality is a little brittle, you know, and I don't, I don't think I could deal with it. And I am having, I want, I've been painting in the same place for a few years that I feel like I need a different place. I like to paint the ocean again. I, I made some paintings of the sea that were actually from my imagination. They weren't from life. I, I wouldn't mind painting the ocean um, from life. And I think in order to do that, I might have to go to a place where there's going to be people around. I'll just have to suck it up and yeah. see how see how that goes. You know, because I don't like to be I don't like to be disturbed when I'm working, but I don't like to be rude either. Yeah. And um, you know, so I go out to this place. Virtually nobody bothers me, and I'm very happy working. I stop and I look at the just look at the landscape. I usually take a cup of coffee with me because I can't rush into anything. You know, I have to get there and sip my coffee and look at the world and get set up. And um, <clears throat> it's it's fun. I have to say that. Yeah, your your um, landscapes, your plein air work that you did, especially over the summer, has has um, well, first it's got some nice textural qualities to it. I was going to ask what you use for that, but. Um, you also, it's very, it's uh, beautifully abstracted. Just, I mean, from a distance, it could just be a gorgeous little abstract work, you know? Um, yeah. They're really nice. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And, uh, um, I think they, inevitably, they're going to be a little abstract, as, as grounded in their reality as they are, whatever that means. Um, because I, I'm so intent on imposing my will on the painting, and um, I'm so curious. I always feel very curious when I'm painting, like, what will happen if I do this? Mm. And what will happen if I do that? And um, what will happen if I, try to, if I try to represent a tree like this or like that? And, of course, you know, uh, most of it doesn't work very well. 
And one thing I've gotten very good at, I think, over the years is um, uh, capitalizing on my own failures. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've gotten so I can um, recover very quickly. And uh, sometimes, sometimes I think it, it's almost healthy if I mess up a painting a little bit, because then I get very unexpected opportunities, I think. And mm -hmm. I've often told my students, you know, it's, there's one of the most fascinating things about color and painting, I think, is there's a very strange relationship between very beautiful color and very horrible color. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing about very horrible color is that um, usually it's horrible because it doesn't, it doesn't conform to our normal expectations of what is acceptable or desirable or attractive. You know, so we look at something and I go, oh my God, you know, whew. And if you look at it for a while, um, sometimes, sometimes there are, are uh, hints, I think, about uh, ways of developing color that are a lot more unusual outside our standard patterns of thought. Because I think anybody who paints realizes at times they're boxed in, they're doing the same thing over and over again. And mm -hmm. like, I'll allow myself to paint what I call a brother or sister painting. Like if I make a painting I really like, uh, invariably the next painting, I'll try to make one just like it. I mean, it's a subconscious thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I guess I'll catch myself and I'll say, okay, you, I'll let, you know, you made a, a painting that's a cousin of the one that you did yesterday. We'll let that happen. And to, then the next day, we'll try to go on to something new, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I, th I, think, I think that that curiosity about what might happen um, is really important to the painter. Um, because, you know, as I told my students, um, you know, if you look at your painting, you have to ask yourself, why, why am I doing this? Why, why am I make this kind of painting? Because a painting could be anything. Mm. It, it could be anything. So if it could be anything, wh why is it this? You know, you have to have a, a good reason or you have to go, you have to have a, you have to go looking for something better. You don't have a good enough reason to stick with what you have really, I don't think. Mm. So uh, I'm getting myself worked up into a state. Now I can't wait to go out again. Now. I but, can tell, but, this is wonderful. You have to I'm, not, I'm not a winter painter, so I'm not gonna be going out for a while. <laughs> yeah, true. That's one thing I don't do. Yeah, yeah, I hear you on that. But what, um, are you using straight brushes all the time or are you using any other kind of? I very seldom use brushes at all, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, okay. particularly if you see the paintings in person, you probably realize that, that okay. I paint, um, my, my plein air paintings are painted um, about 85, 85% with a folded up blue worked out. Like that you get at Home Depot, those yeah, 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 sure. kind of cloth rags. Yeah. And um, this is something I stumbled onto years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've relied on it more and more and more. The figure, the painting I made in my studio the other day, I made the whole painting with a blue work rag. Um, wow. And I used a small brush to suggest a contrail in the sky because I couldn't do it any other way. And um, I like that tool because it can be folded up into a little ball, a medium-sized ball, or a big ball. Sure. And um, you can bounce it across the panel. You can drag it. You can 
you can do you can wipe away with it you can all kinds of things and and i use i don't use i take about 20 brushes with me um i hardly ever use them when i use when i need them they're really important to me i could i couldn't live without them you know sure. for certain things but i actually think it's it's also perhaps a little bit characteristic of older painters that I mean, if you read biographies of uh, Leonardo da Vinci or Rembrandt or Titian or quite often it's very it's very common to hear the author say by then he painted very little with brushes and mostly with his fingers wow. and um, I think that I actually think the standard bristle hog bristle brush uh, that most painters rely on um, it's not a very satisfactory tool to my mind. Like it's it, hard for you to do it's anything. Limiting, I, I would say, it, it feels limiting. Yeah, yeah, and it, I, I mean, I've used now, fortunately, and probably a lot of young painters know even more about this than I do. But some of the acrylic oil brushes, they have more sensitive fibers, um, and I do have a few of those, by the way, that because I. Some of them are I like because uh, they're very firm and very soft at the same time. It's almost like having a flexible palette knife. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I, I think it's I think it has a little bit of a tendency. The more you paint, the more impatient you become. You when you're young, you figure I should learn how to paint with this, and after a while, you can still get disgusted with trying to do that. Then you move on to something else. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that. Break out, break out. So, um, what do you have coming upcoming for a series, or do you have some grand event or or masterpiece you'd like to to complete in the next few years? If I, if I do, I don't know it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it will appear. <laughs> yeah, I. In some respects, in some respects. Um, I'm so committed to my subject and everything that uh, it'll be more of the same. Um, and, and of course, you know, uh, some paintings have meant more to me than others. And um, I think because I didn't paint my main paintings, my figure and landscape paintings all winter last year, um, I find myself looking ahead. Of course, I'm always thinking to make a real nice one, you know. Mm -hmm. and something that really says something about humanity or something like that. Um, so I can only hope to improve the quality of the work. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that would involve uh, a twist uh, on what I'm doing now or my ability to push it someplace. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm entering. I'll be 69 this year, and my my father, when he was old, he called it a strange time of life. And um, so it's kind of like in five years, you hope just to be alive. Quite frankly, you know, uh, I already have friends that are dead, and um, so you just hope for that. You know, the opportunity to come out and take a few more swings, and um, so. I, I think it's one, one thing about becoming, painters tend, you, I'm sure you know this, but painters tend to do pretty well in old age. They seem to get better. Mm. They, 
if they're not an alcoholic or have some other kind of problem, I think they paint in a way that's pretty fulfilled as they get older. And um, that, so there's a, uh, a reason to be hopeful, I think, um, about it. And um, also, uh, you know, you outgrow the stress and self-consciousness about your talent. You're not worried about if you're any good at anymore or you find out early in your career that there's always somebody who can paint better you know and um so i think it, that can be very liberating um that experience i'm a lot more relaxed as an artist and confident and happy with what i do than when i was younger when i was younger there was always something wrong with it there was always i would finish a painting then i wake up in the middle of the night and i would had to make a small correction in it and then I would make it worse again and um, and what would you tell your students when they start behaving that way is there something you would help them some yeah, well if they're painting in my class they make a good painting I tell them to stop yeah <laughs> you know? and um but I mean when they when they're you know is there some wisdom that you would say to them you know about being so stressed over things you know yeah um well i don't know if there's a particular nugget um that i delivered but i uh my probably a lot of my students would testify that i stressed them out all the time uh, with my mere presence but i did i did i did try to i have a meter like i think every art teacher does for the person who's being counterproductive and um uh, I would tell somebody, you know, relax, this isn't too bad, you know. Uh, uh, well, I would often tell a student, the only thing worse than a bad student is one that's too good. You know, if you take it too seriously, if you get too um, clutched about it, um, again, it was uh, going back to the, the Charlie Chaplin movie again, The Circus, you know, if you're the clown who once you start to try to be funny, you're not funny anymore because you're, you're not being yourself, you know? And um, so it, it takes a real balance because you know, you don't want to tell young people, for example, you don't want to give the impression that it's okay not to work hard, right, right. you know? Yeah. Uh, Cause that's not a bad instinct to have at all. Um, but, but I think it's a, well, I think that people who are successful painters on any level, whatever that means, at a certain point they realize that you have to be kind of your own guru and psychoanalyst and counselor. And uh, you, know how, how, you know how you have to know when to be very disciplined, when to try harder, when to critique yourself very hard. And you have to know when to be accepting and, and try to appreciate what you can do on your own level. There's, a, there's an old saying in, yeah. uh, in golf that you should, you should play within yourself. You know, you shouldn't try to hit the ball farther than you're capable of. You shouldn't expect to hit certain types of shots that you, you should play the game in a way that's consistent with your talent, you know? And so I think, I think a, a painter does, uh, you, you, can, you can miss your own ability, your talent, your opportunity to accomplish anything by trying to accomplish something more or other than. One thing I did see in teaching that was chronic was that and it's a sad thing to, to watch, by the way, because you can, it's, it's almost futile to do anything about it, is that 
you see a group of painting students, a dozen painting students in a class, and um, it was quite often somebody that's painting on one side of the room who's perfectly talented. They don't want to paint in a way that's consistent with their talent. They want to paint like that other person on the other side of the room, and that person wants to paint like somebody else over here, and then that person wants to. <clears throat> and, and you say, geez, you know, it's great to be influenced by other people. It really is. You can learn a lot from your fellow students and everything. Everybody has a gift, you know, and you, you have to pay attention to that thing, you know. Um, that part of getting an education in art, I think, is not getting one. You know, it's just nurturing that that gift, and um, uh, you know, that's why sometimes students are more academic than the teachers. That um, so I would sometimes tell student, you know, oh, you know, uh, you've got to try to make a work of art now. You have to learn how to make the work that you want now. You can't just learn perspective, learn figure drawing, learn anatomy, learn total shading, you learn, you know, all these things, and then become an artist. Right. Um, by then, by then, the part that is an artist will have atrophied and blown away, and. Um, you have to start to become, and I always, has, I always, always tell a student, that means don't, I'm not telling you not to listen to me. Don't, I want you to listen to me, but there are times when, when you have to make decisions for yourself. And so anyway. Yeah. So what is success for you? We'll, we'll close out with this one. Success for you as an artist. Having not, having not very often achieved it, I wouldn't know. Oh, you, stumped, you stumped me. You stumped me. Uh, I don't know. I, uh, I, uh, I think that um, the, the, the thing that uh, I enjoy the most in working is the sensation of completing something. Mm. I mean, I've completed an awful lot of paintings and drawings in my life. Mm. Uh, I live for that. And when I've completed it, I mean, I don't call it a done game unless it's something that brings me some level of satisfaction and joy. And so I guess on one level, I'll call that a success. If I, I feel like I can put it down, walk off and go live my life and forget about art for a while and come back the next day with some enthusiasm to do something else. And so you can live a happy life. I, I guess I would say, that's what it seems like um, is successful. Mm. If you, if we did this interview tomorrow, I'd probably give you a totally, that's probably a random answer, but, but I think, but I think that, I think, no, I think it's true. I yep. think that's what I think. Yeah. So. That's a good one. Okay. I like Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, this has been really great. So we're going to look forward to the book. I'm, I'm thinking that you're going to go forward. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have a lot to to impart, and it would be a, a fascinating yeah. read. So, if it's not in the works, get gone. <laughs> yeah, all right. You give me something to keep me out of trouble, anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wonderful. And um, just before we close, um, your website is craighoodart.com. Yeah, and that's also your Instagram. Yeah. And then is there um, any local galleries where your artwork can be seen in the, in the New Hampshire, Maine area? Well, 
although I didn't show it to George Marshall's store gallery this year, um, I quite often have over the years, uh, the Van Ward Gallery, which is a small gallery in Agunquit, okay. always shows my work um, right. in the summer. And um, the man who runs the, owns the gallery, Chris Cariavello, uh, who's my biggest collector actually, owns quite a bit of my work. He's a, the most supportive person in the world to me, I have to say. Um, uh, he usually shows my work, um, especially my, the gallery is small, so he usually shows my plein air paintings, but, um, and uh, I don't know, once the uh, COVID thing is over, mm -hmm. if I'm still around, if I survive that experience, um, be looking for a place to show my work that's a little closer to home, because my gallery that I've shown that mostly for the last 12 years is in Montreal. And as you know, you can't even get into Canada now mm -hmm. if you're an American. So yeah, you can kiss that one goodbye. That's right. And uh, they're, they're, they've been having trouble, um, as a lot of galleries have been. Sure. And um, they're, they're uncertain of their future. So uh, if, if I show someplace, I'll tell you what, it'll be on Instagram. All right. Okay. I won't be shy about that. Good. Yeah, I'd love to see you work in person. Very beautiful. Well, thank you again, Craig. I really appreciated you You're taking welcome. the time. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll catch up again soon. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. See you. Good night. Bye bye.